A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 11th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government has already allocated €3 billion Euro in spending over the course of the next year. It's about to decide how it will spend another €3.7 billion Euro. and in a €6.7 billion Euro budget it will announce tax measures worth $1.05 billion. Yesterday the tax strategy group papers published by the Department of Finance spelled out the options government has for using this money when it announces the budget on the 27th of September. The budget, uh, which is now only uh, just over a month away, will contain a substantial income tax package uh, that will reduce income tax for low-income workers, for middle-income workers and higher-income workers, but a particular emphasis uh, on middle-income workers. And the exact detail as to how that's achieved has to be worked out between now and budget day, but what is absolutely agreed is the principle uh, that we will see a very substantial income tax reduction package in the budget, um, almost all benefit workers will benefit from that Uh, and it's necessary because it's one of the ways not the only way but one of the ways that we can help people uh, with the rising cost of living by making sure that they can uh, keep more of their hard-earned money uh, and making sure the work pays better. The temptation for uh, Fine Gael Finance Minister must be to put €1,000 into the pockets of middle and high income earners by introducing a new tax band of 30%. That's despite the warning that it would be inequitable because it would do nothing for low or modest income earners. But it sees a typical Fine Gael voter gain €1,000 a year. So there is food for thought in that. The authors of this report suggest indexing tax bans will benefit more people. A €15 welfare increase is also something for the government to mull over. I'm confident that we will see a welfare package in September uh, that is bigger than the one uh, that we saw in the last budget. It'll need to be because of the cost of living. It's 
not right for me at the moment to speculate yeah. on exact numbers um, because uh, in the end of the day the budget has to add up uh, and there are competing priorities. Uh, we want to reduce uh, the burden of tax uh, on working people. We want to increase pensions and welfare. We also want to spend more money on housing and healthcare and education and we want to do all that without having to borrow. Uh, so, you know, we need to make sure that we uh, get the mix right uh, and at this stage to go into pr- exact percentages our, our numbers wouldn't be helpful. The Tarnished Leo Vratker speaking on foot of uh, the publication of uh, the Tax Strategy Group papers yesterday. Labour's spokesperson on finance is Loud and Smith, TD Jed Nash is on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. There's a, a lot of money that uh, the government can decide to spend in one way or another. There's obviously going to be this substantial break for workers. Uh, interesting to hear the Tarnished there say almost all workers will benefit. Well, I think that's the point. Uh, and I think uh, the uh, mood music that the Tonister has created over the last few weeks uh, pointed to the prospect of a 30% tax rate, a new intermediary tax rate, between the 20% and the 40% is interesting. Uh, and it shows, I think, ideologically, uh, where his emphasis is and where Finnegan's emphasis is. It's certainly not uh, on lower and middle income workers because we know that the 30% rate, I said this before the tax strategy group papers uh, were uh, you know, dropped yesterday, that was going to disproportionately benefit uh, those who are much better off, those, those higher earners in our society. When in mm-hmm. fact, we know that even if you're only concerned about the cost of living, uh, which we all should be at the moment, uh, and that you're not necessarily concerned about the position of low and middle income workers into the future, then the thing that you would do and the way in which you would target measures best is actually through the social welfare system and to a degree through the tax system, but to benefit uh, those who are on lower and middle incomes. We know that only 35%, Michael, and the tax strategy group papers prove this, only 35% of workers would actually benefit from a new 30% tax rate. It would be very expensive as well if you were to change that band. You're currently paying the higher rate of tax uh, the 40% rate if you earn on the portion of income that you earn over €36,800. Mm. His plan would be, uh, as evidenced in the tax strategy group papers, to introduce that new band uh, and you would not be paying then the 40% uh, until you reach €46,800. So on that 10,000 gap, um, it's very interesting because that would cost about a billion euros and only benefit 35% of taxpayers. But if you're to index the tax rate, so do what, for example, the government did last year to take account of rising prices and rising incomes, and incomes are rising, but not as fast as prices are rising. The real problem for low and middle income workers is that they're playing catch up. If you're to do that, it would cost less and would benefit more people. That being said, Mm. the average worker, you know, a married worker uh, with a couple of children would only probably be 10 euro a week. Well, that's it, eh, because it's after you you go past uh, that uh, band uh, point. Uh, and the thing is, is that there is a squeezed middle, as they're known, and it may be very popular uh, in terms of how it's presented, uh, because it will result in more money in people's pockets. And they will tell you that they have uh, found it hard over the recent months, and there's a lot more to face into. And anything that helps uh, will be greatly appreciated. Uh, but it won't just help them a bit, it'll also help the very highest of earners, while on the other hand it will do nothing at all for the lowest of earners. 
nothing. Now we do know in this country that, that you know we have a really progressive tax system, and, and that's really embedded in our tax culture as well in this country. And, and all of the OECD evidence, the experts, international evidence shows that we've actually got the most progressive tax system of all the wealthy countries across uh, across the world. And that's something I think to be proud of. And the problem though is that the reason why it's progressive is that we've got very high levels of inequality uh, between those at the top and those at the bottom and mm. when we look at wages themselves you know wages for people on low low incomes certainly aren't great we've got a low pay problem mm. but the tax and welfare system does a lot of heavy lifting to kind of minimize that inequality um with taxes and transfers and that, that's a kind of good thing mm. but, uh, how, how are these papers drawn up um i mean we're told that the government is being presented with the options uh, in terms of spending the 6.7 billion euro that it has at its disposable, but uh, where do those options come from? Because there would seem to be lots of other options available to the government if somebody was to suggest them to them, and I can't understand why they're not. Because I mean, there's, there's, but I mean, there's, there's this uh, option of a 30% tax ban. What about a 50% tax ban for uh, somebody who's earning over 150,000 or 250,000? And one of the things actually that they, they should have done if if they were serious about this, and you know, and, and I, I got really interrupted there, Michael, to to repeat it twice that mm. this is a political process, whether we like it or not. It, it, this 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 is generally aligned with the um, ideological and political preferences of of ministers, and ministers will ask, though they will never accept this tax strategy group or the finance. These are ideas that may be knocking around at government level, and they ask government, you know various ministers will ask the tax strategy groups through the Minister for Finance mm. and the Department to actually cost these measures and to, to independently scrutinise them. So I think looking through all of this, you can see the kind of ideological direction of the government. For example, um, the last time that uh, tax rates were changed in this country was 2015. I have some experience of that because I was actually at the Cabinet table at the time. A proposition was made by Fine Gael to actually reduce the top rate of tax by 1%. That was done, but we argued that on a progressive level. So how do you do that? You actually claw back money from those who are higher off. And we did that by adding a percentage point to the USC. So nobody actually who's benefited from any of the tax changes over the last few years, nobody earning over €70,000 has actually benefited because of that small but really important change to claw that back. There's been no reference whatsoever to tax strategy group papers in the context of the this 30% wheeze from the here that he woke up in the morning uh, that the, the, the finance and minister of finance seems to know nothing about. This was obviously caused to try and um, uh, placate uh, to me, this seems like uh, more, 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 more sense of actually costing Finnegan's next election manifesto than actually doing anything about it now. Mm-hmm. There would seem to be other options. I, I mean, uh, there's multinational companies in uh, this country earning billions of euro that pay little or no tax. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there's any mention of a, a minimum rate of corporation tax in these papers. There isn't, but there's extensive... Um, commentary about the uh, new corporation tax system that uh, we're inevitably going to have uh, over the next period of time. And I've been arguing for quite some time that Ireland should have signed up earlier than we did to the 15% rate that the OECD sought uh, uh, international agreement on. I think it was embarrassing for Ireland uh, that we decided not to do that. This idea that Ireland is vulnerable uh, to, to lose, you know, approximately €2 billion Euro a year mm. because of these this reform package doesn't stand up at all. That's a scare monitoring from the Department of Finance. I'm really concerned as well that other left parties as well as purport to be left-wing. Sinn Féin, for example, mm. were, 
were very slow to agree to the uh, 12.5% rate going up to 15%. And I think that was more of a application of friends in America than anything else. They're wealthy friends in America. But that's by the by. I mean, companies who are based here are doing really, really well. They can afford to contribute more. Well, they're not paying 12.5%. So, uh, I mean, it, yeah, the effective rate is probably closer to about 10%. Yeah, and if you um, got it to 6 or, or 3 uh, for those who are, are paying below that, uh, you, you'd be doing well. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, we've argued in successful alternative budgets, especially when I became Labour Party uh, spokesman for finance of, of the idea of a, of a digital services tax, uh, an idea that knocking around Europe mm. for, for some time in advance of corporation tax reform. That could extract a, a, a small bit more returns, especially from those who are doing exceptionally well mm. from the Irish economy and from the, the, the work of, of, of their skilled Irish workers. Corporation tax is a really important part of the puzzle here. I mean, it's likely at some point to actually um, outpace FAF become the second most important tax head. It's grown exponentially and in, in, in the real meaning of the word exponentially, Michael, in, in, in recent years, and we are very, very reliant on it. And that's why I'd be very nervous uh, of any significant changes to the tax base, because we should learn from um, we should learn from uh, the experience in the 2000s when there was a massive concentration uh, uh, to successful Fianna Fáil and Progressive Democrat governments of actually reducing the tax base and, you know, reducing income tax mm. consistently, narrowing the tax base. It meant then when things went well because of poor regulation and because of mismanagement. The, 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 the government didn't have any money which it was collecting through taxes. Entirely, uh, uh, entirely. And the focus yeah, then yeah, was on income tax yeah, cuts mm. and on property transactions okay. including on, on homes. Let, let's move on. Be to careful how we proceed. Let's move on to welfare if we can in the couple of minutes that we have. Uh, there is an option that I've been hearing about uh, since the beginning of the year, I think, and certainly over the last couple of months uh, that welfare would be increased by €20. Uh, That option doesn't seem to have been looked at. For some reason they've decided to look at €15 and I think that is is, is in a a way to manage people's expectations of what they can can expect from government. Remember, and people people forget this, last year was the first year um, in in, in three to four years that the government decided to actually add anything to cause social welfare rates. Now we know for for a significant period of that time we were actually in, 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 in the pandemic, and there was an, an acknowledgement that you know social welfare rates were inadequate because the government had decided overnight to uh, create a pandemic unemployment payment system more directly related to average wages to you know, provide three hundred and fifty euro for those who couldn't work because of public health, mm. health restrictions. So, um, you know, our view has been for quite some time that we need to index link uh, social welfare rates and stop this big reveal. Uh, every um, uh, September or October in the budget where, you know, there's an extra five or an extra ten okay. uh, based on the, on, the, on, the, on the wishes of the, 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 the Minister at the time. To, to, uh, you know, in, in and would be linked to the average industrial wage, the increases would be similar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's the reality. Okay, but, but, but you can see why they're saying 15 instead of 20 euro a, a week. Uh, the cost of uh, 15 euro a week is 1.1 billion and it would be 1.5 billion if it was go to 20 euro a week. That's right, and that's what we've cost of that. And that's, this is what, you know, mm. the likes of, of Vincent de Paul have been saying, mm. uh, Barnardo's, uh, the Vincentian Partnership. Yeah. You see, what we need is adequacy in terms mm. of social welfare payments. Those who cannot work, those in a position where they're ill. Uh, and what about those who can work? I mean, it's one thing for pensioners and uh, people who are on disability payments and carers and so on. But what about those who can work and won't work? Well, that must be a very, very small minority. Well, 15,000 job seekers uh, 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 claiming the dole for 10 years at least. 
Yeah, and, and every every individual has their own individual story, and that's why, for example, you know, training and education is really really important. Um, you know, we have a very tight labour force. But there's full on there's, there's full employment. So there's people crying employment. out for staff. Absolutely, yeah, and that, that's 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 one way. You know, the, the social welfare system can respond enough in terms of uh, in terms of what they call the activation of people who are long term unemployed. Well, there are many many reasons, as we know, every one of those ten to fifteen thousand people have their own individual stories about why mm. that, 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 is, that is the position. I, I rarely meet anybody at all who uh, who isn't working, who doesn't want to work. There are well, it's justifiable they shouldn't be classified, in my mind, as job seekers at a time when there's full employment. Well, that's, that's the term that the state has used, and mm. the term that the state has used for a, a, long, a long, long time. And uh, it's always been my ambition that anybody who can work and anybody who's willing and ready to work should work, because work is a bit more than simply picking up the weekly or monthly paycheck. It's about taking the work, it's about making the contribution. Yeah, it's also about giving up your medical card and your bus pass and other benefits as well, and that's uh, one of the problems with it, isn't it? Well, well, there are considerable benefits that come along with um, the social welfare system, Mm. and and that that is only right that people have, have, have a a floor of dignity beneath which state they should not be. But but not if it doesn't pay you to work. Well, you know, when you think about it, Mike, there has been some changes made in recent years, um, over the last seven, eight years, where people can uh, keep their um, medical card and certainly their GP card mm-hmm. when they're working for the first couple of years. Uh, I know, but if somebody hasn't worked for 10 years and they won't work, uh, should they get a 15 euro increase? 20 euro well, the, increase? The social welfare system is the social welfare system, and we can't simply decide that uh, there are different classes of um, clearance within those groups that would be probably administratively very, very difficult uh, as well. And, you know, I, I think we can be proud of, of the social welfare system we have in this country. It needs to actually be made, uh, that's a side argument about that very small number of people. What it needs to be made is more adequate, more adequate for people who are in genuine need. We have too many people as well who might be in, in jobs paying 40,000, 50,000 euros a year have, have a sudden drop then uh, in, in their payment if they are suddenly made unemployed. Mm. What we need to be doing, actually, and we've debated this in the programme from time to time over Mm, the years, mm. is to move to a system that's more directly related to the level of payment that you would be on in the last job that you're working in for a period of time. That's what happens in Denmark, that's what happens in other countries that we like to compare ourselves against. And that would be the modern social welfare system worth the name. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Uh, I suppose this is the beginning of uh, the countdown to the 27th of uh, September, which will be Budget Day, and there'll be a lot of hope in advance of that. It's probably the most important budget in 15 years or thereabouts uh, since uh, the crash in 2008. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, that's uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Loud and East Meath TD Jednash. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, there's an awful problem uh, with uh, the water in Dundalk. Uh, The water that's coming out of some people's taps is simply disgusting. It's brown, it's mucky, it's murky, and it doesn't look fit for consumption. We heard earlier this week that the reason for that is because of what Loud County Council and Irish Water describe as essential flushing works. This is to clear magnesia sediment from the pipes and also because of sediment from 
old cast iron mains which suffer from corrosion uh, and that results in sediment uh, and the idea is to flush all of this out uh, even though a lot of it isn't harmful but it's off-putting uh, and that's why it's all the worse because they are flushing it out and that's why the water is so bad uh, at the moment uh, but not all are happy. Let's hear why. Sinn Féin TD for Loud the Nice Mead, Rory O'Murku is on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. It is pretty awful to look at uh, and it seems as this is going to go on for at least uh, another month, more than that in fact. Yeah, no, uh, on, unfortunately we can't, We don't have clarity yet on how long it's actually going to go on uh, until, look, the fact is we had this over a number of years. We had the issue, as you spoke earlier, about manganese in the system and it was being flushed. Now, I've had multiple meetings and discussions with Irish Water and um, we know that a flushing process was carried out. Now, they did admit that at that stage they didn't have a fully allocated resource or team that was working on it uh, all the time. They also said that there were certain sections of the system that during this flushing process they couldn't touch. But even if we go back a year before that and before that again, we've been dealing consistently, constantly in Nundalk with brown water. And there's an element of people have probably been burnt a couple too many times that they don't necessarily believe what they're hearing. And the other thing I'd say at the minute is they're not hearing a whole pile from Irish water, and that's a big problem. Mm. Even as a here of TD, and you're sending in just looking for an update, I accept that they had spoken about a major flushing process that's on now to obviously get those pockets of uh, manganese, but also to deal with, you know, sediment problem that we've had for a number of years. Um, and there was an, an my meeting with them was in mid-June. At that stage, they were starting with flushing process uh, that dealt with largely the Black Rock area. At this point, we're talking about in around the 20, I'm going to say the 20, 21st of July, was around the 25th of July, I think, something like that, right through to the 14th of September, but that's for Dundalk, but it's only part of Dundalk. Mm. Like, that would deal with where I'm living myself, that some of this is ongoing at the minute. That's like the likes of, let's say, Bay State, here we're having more, go up Tom Bellew Avenue, yeah. up as far as Carolyn Hall, it would be over to Green Acres and the Alphonsus Road. But that leaves huge amounts of areas, the likes of, if you're talking about the far end, about Marion Park, O'Hanlon Park, you know, you're even talking down the key and other places where people are contacting you on a consistent, regular basis. Mm. But they do have a, a clear schedule of works. So I'm not sure that they've stuck to it, though. It's uh, to go from the 25th of July through to the 14th of September. And I think they advised you to advise people to look at Irish Water's social media platforms to see when they're going to be affected. No, and see in relation to there had also been outages uh, short outages uh, last week and they said even possibly some into the beginning of next week. So I had asked them, first of all, are we dealing with mass discoloration because of the flushing process? Are we dealing with it because of the works that have been carried out recently in, in Cavan Hill? And also I'm looking for a conversation specifically with one of their top officials who mm. deals with this specific stuff about the fact is I accept that maybe what was done previously was insufficient what we're about to do is on a bigger scale. And as bad as it is, are we going to say that into the future, 
um, this is going to be improved, particularly, let's say, if right. we talk about uh, September but, 14th, yeah. and we talk about the end of this particular area. I don't you know, know but uh, I mean, uh, that seems to be what they're saying. Are you not accepting the... I'm, I, no, I'm, I, I'm looking for clarity in relation to that. I was, I was very hopeful when I heard they had a full team or resource mm. dedicated to this. All at this point I'm looking for is information that I can then pass on to the constituents mm. that are coming to but us. Isn't that and what they're telling you? Yeah, but isn't that what they're telling you? In, fair, in fairness to them, as you say, isn't that what they're telling you? They're pushing, or flushing this manganese, uh, you say it's called, uh, out, uh, as well as uh, the discoloration that's coming from sediment from old corroding cast iron pipes. And they're flushing that out of the system. That's causing the discoloration. You, do, do you not accept that? I accept. I, I accept that flushing is happening on the basis that we are dealing with old infrastructure. So therefore, you have that mm. sediment problem. You had that sediment problem long before we had yeah. the manganese problem. I also accepted when they said they couldn't flush the entire amount of manganese because there were certain sections of the water system that they couldn't access, but that they were rectifying that. Okay. And I said, that's brilliant stuff. Yeah. All I'm looking for at this point is an update in relation to this from a point of view that we can tell people that yes, what's happening now is possibly what should have happened previously. Okay. That we're having a full scale industrial flush, that there's going to be a team and that's it. that will be there from there on. So when uh, we get through it, no, yeah. that, that it will be improved. That's also accepting yeah. that some of this won't be improved until the infrastructure is changed, and that's going to take many, many years. So we need to yeah, sure, decades. sure that we deal with the main part of the problem and then that it's a smaller clean-up. And it's not... Okay, well, what if Irish Water come back to you? Well, the same question I put to John Sheridan. What if Irish Water come back to you and say, if you want this perfect water system, pay water charges uh, because we don't have the money to replace all these pipes? Now, what we need in relation to this is a timeline. Uh, a timeline, mm. firstly, in relation to this flushing process. Right. And then I have been... September looking, 14th, it's meant to end, uh, No, 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 no. September 14th deals with one part of Dundalk. You know what I mean? And I suppose the question always is when you flush from one place to another, you know what I mean? You don't, it, it, sometimes it can end up in places you don't want. So therefore, it means that you will have a problem that you will then have to rectify again but after it, that. I mean, the plan was to do one part of Dundalk uh, the week, the, the 25th of July, and other parts of Dundalk uh, the uh, first week of August and right through up to the 14th of September. No, no, but when you go through the, like, mm. if, if you go through that, they actually, in fairness, made a detailed statement yeah. about this, like they had previously in relation to the Black Rock one. Yeah. But there are huge areas in Dundalk that are not included. As I say, it's more the area of time that I'm from myself okay. that seems mm. to be being dealt with first um, and I just want to know is following September 14th are we starting the next process for the next part and some of these areas are the areas that are also like here don't get me wrong mm. I, I, all I have to do is put the tap on uh, in my own house mm-hmm. to find out there's a problem at the minute and don't get me wrong I'm not challenging you I know it's an awful thing for people I, I'm just wondering what it is you want to know you want to know if at uh, the end of this process let's say the end of September uh, what happens next? Is that basically the, 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 the well, question well, at this stage? I'm, I'm looking for one thing. I'm looking for the want of, uh, excuse the yeah. pun and all, cast iron guarantee. Um, <laughs> yeah. In relation to, let's say, September 14th, that this piece of the infrastructure that they have dealt with 
uh, in around the southern end of Dundalk, right, that that is largely dealt with, that they, then that they will move through the rest of Dundalk, that that will largely deal with that particular issue. Um, and then beyond that, that there will be a team that will be here ready and waiting and doing the constant work that will be required. And then I am looking for a timeline in relation to all the various pieces of work that needs done. I have asked for a meeting in relation to asset planning in Irish water. They are the people who have to look at this from a macro, from a long-term level. Okay. We have a huge amount of industry that are coming in. We've obviously had an increase in population and, and you know, we all mm. know the difficulties in relation to housing. So we need to ensure that water isn't the reason, is our water system is fit for purpose and we make sure that that's not going to be one of the reasons, which happens from time to yeah. time. You get developers that will tell you they have difficulties in relation to dealing of course, with yeah, 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 yeah. So we need yeah. all of that dealt with. Okay. We all don't right. want that we have somebody else like Wushi or somebody to come in and yeah. isn't able to and has to make a consideration on the basis that they don't necessarily have the infrastructure. Now, Irish Water advised that they have, but that's why I want that high-level meeting where we can actually have it stated out clearly. Mm. First and foremost, there's a huge amount of people in Dundalk who are very worried when they see absolutely brown water. They're not too worried about different excuses, different years. I know. No, I I understand that and I accept that completely. Uh, As you said earlier, you turn on your tap this morning and the brown murky stuff that comes out of it uh, is disgusting that same stuff will be coming out of your tap undoubtedly tomorrow morning and uh, possibly for some time to come Uh, we'll make contact with Irish Water we'll put those points to them uh, and we'll come back to it in in the coming days if that's okay Michael Reed on LMFM Now two people have died and there's been 42 serious injuries as a result of collisions involving e-scooters. This is since uh, the start of 2020 according to the Road Safety Authority which compiled the figures from reports to Gardaí that were recorded on its Pulse computer system and uh, they made that information available uh, to Catherine Catherine Murphy, the co-leader of the Social Democrats, in response to a parliamentary question. This was reported on in the Irish Times yesterday. And uh, apart from the two deaths and uh, the 42 serious injuries, the Irish Times separately reported that there were 535 traffic incidents involving e-scooters in the first nine months of last year and 136 of those involved a collision. Let's speak to Michael McLaughlin, who's uh, the head of Advocacy and Communications with Youth Work Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. What are, what are your thoughts on e-scooters? Because undoubtedly they're very handy uh, and attractive way of getting around, but there's no doubt that they can be very dangerous as well. Yeah, well, like a lot of people, you see people around that haven't partaken myself, but uh, you see the growing numbers, I suppose. I see that the department are saying that they will eventually regulate, but it seems to be taking uh, forever. And you're kind of wondering, well, why? What's the kind of big push? And it seems, from the department's point of view, it's an environmental uh, idea that they are more environmentally friendly. I suppose there is something in that. But nonetheless, you're pushing electricity into them. I, I declare a slight interest. I'm certainly a big cyclist that has been in the past. And I suppose basically, uh, there's a thing that under 25 kilometres is seen as a cut-off point, whereas they're just not. They're just treated like, like bikes really but there's no licensing yeah. or that kind of thing and that does seem to be reasonably sensible um, and in terms of the figures I suppose well you'd have to compare it to other forms I mean I think a lot more people 
cycling and we've all those kind of issues as vulnerable road users and that type of thing. So I suppose we do need to promote them. But on the other hand, clearly there needs to be regulation. And, and like a lot of Irish situations, it just seems to be taking forever. And I suppose the government got to, got to move on that. It would be a lot clearer. OK, well, that's part of the problem, is it not? Uh, because that regulation will not apply to most e-scooters and indeed e-bikes uh, because uh, most of them will not uh, exceed speeds of 25 kilometres. They're going to be reclassified as powered personal transporters uh, and there will be no regulations. Yeah, and again, you can sort of see the logic. If you're going under 25 kilometres, I think you are more like a bike, like a standard bike, which uh, I think, again, is, is probably even a better solution because you're not using electricity, you're using your own, your own power. And we're going mm. to need these things in, in the transport mix. Now, I, I, I think it was interesting to read about uh, these, and I've seen these as well, these quote-unquote power bikes, which, you know, I think are closer to mopeds or even even even. You know, yeah. kind of not so powerful motorbikes and they seem to be more common too and I've seen people on pedestrian areas with them and personally just purely personally I've been more worried about them I mean you mm. will have accidents and the person on the road a pedestrian a cyclist will have accidents so we will get data of course on that yeah. So It I seems you're going to need licence to drive one of them tax and insurance uh, you'll need to wear a helmet and so on and all of that seems very prudent the 25 kilometer thing makes sense to me, and then you, you would regulate people under 25 kilometers as if they were cyclists. And I have, I have a bit of an interest in that, but I know there are, if you make cycling, as a, to get the E part, but just ordinary cycling, there is certainly research that shows if you make it more difficult or put more onus on people, there was talk about licensing bikes and insurance, ordinary push bikes. And really, I think the cycling groups say, look, that, that's going to make it harder and more mm. difficult and more bureaucratic for us now. You just get in your bike and you go. So okay. There okay, but I mean, do you think it's all right for a 12-year-old to get on a, a, an e-scooter and uh, drive on the wrong side of the road or on a footpath without a helmet? Because that's what yeah, we're okay. seeing. That's what we're seeing every day, Michael, you know? We need enforcement in all these areas, and that's, that's for sure. But, but if there's I mean, no regulation, there's nothing to enforce, do you know what I mean? Well, I think you have a, there's a general duty for anyone using the road, and you would be using the road now, mm. in a cycling lane, and there's a lot more of those, so you, you would have the, the, the e-scooter would go in the cycling lane the mm. same way as the bicycle. If that needs a regulation, then that's fine, because that would make perfect sense to me. Mm. I mean, but I think they are general kind of things about the safe use of the road that are imposed on, on all road users. So I, I, I just feel that the... the I suppose the e-scooter seems to be kind of a, I don't know, a trendy thing at the moment. It's an, it's an interesting issue. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, it drives people mad, uh, and people are also worried about the riders uh, as well, and with good reason. Apart from the two uh, deaths and the forty-two injuries that were reported in the Irish Times yesterday, they were reminding us uh, of studies in uh, the matter in the Kappa Hospital, for example, fifteen patients uh, that they treated uh, after accidents uh, on e-scooters. Injuries included extremity fractures, dislocations, chest, facial uh, and head injuries. Uh, And of the 15 patients who they said were all travelling at relatively high speeds, only four of them were wearing helmets. Yeah, I think people are going at higher speeds. So I don't know how this 25 kilometre thing gets enforced as well, because I think I'm not knowledgeable, but I think you can go at more than 25 kilometres on an e-scooter. I don't think it's restricted, but I think the injuries, look, it, it sounds bad, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm sure cyclists present with the exact same numbers, and certainly if you're a cyclist and, and you're in any sort of collision, you get injured, maybe the pedestrian gets injured, and if you hit a car, you're in real trouble. So mm-hmm. 
Uh, those things are all out there for what we call the vulnerable road users. But I think in the end of the day, we're going to have to have more of these alternative forms of transport. I and mean, that's just, mm. just the way it's going to be well, for, for, for environmental and for our own personal fitness reasons. I don't think e-scooter contributes much to your personal fitness. It's an interesting point you make uh, because if, if it can do 25 kilometres using its engine on the flat, uh, what's going to happen when you're going downhill uh, and if it's a steep hill? Uh, I presume that could yeah. go up to 50 quite easily. Yeah, I really don't know. I was on one of the 10 seconds once that a friend had. That's my total knowledge of using them. So, but obviously, they can, I'm pretty sure they can go more. They can go more than 25. So then, the regulation comes a bit a bit silly. Really, you'd be really working hard to go more than 25 on a bike anyway. The average user, so that doesn't really arise for the yeah. ordinary cyclist. And I think the answer is really to treat them the same way as you treat cyclists. And that means a few more regulations for cyclists. Then, then fine, but I think we need to go easy on that if you want to promote more, more of it. But mm. how you deal with that, I just don't know whether you get the manufacturers involved or whatever, because I don't think you can regard it every traffic light thing. Are you, do, are you doing 26 kilometres? So there has to be some common sense there. But I think you, you can see if someone is behaving dangerously, it's pretty self-evident. OK, Michael, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining Thank us you. this morning. Michael McLaughlin, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Youth Work Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, thousands of Ukrainian refugees are going to have to move out of student accommodation in uh, the coming weeks, uh, 3,000 of them, and then another 1,200 uh, in the weeks after that. Uh, the Taunashta, uh, Leo Radker, was asked what is uh, the government going to do uh, in terms of finding accommodation for all of uh, these people, and uh, Leo Radker said uh, that uh, the government is considering all options. He said yesterday that we're doing the best we can to accommodate people as best we can in all sorts of different settings, whether it's rented accommodation, whether it's in hotels and B&Bs, whether it's modular accommodation or whether it's in people's homes. And that's what we'll continue to do. Let's talk about this with Fiona Hurley of NASC, the Migrant and Refugee Rights Centre. Good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, It's been a huge challenge to the state already people sleeping in tents uh, and on the floors of big halls uh, and so on. Uh, It seems like an even greater challenge is ahead of us. There is uh, a a really large challenge, as you say, um, in the coming month or so when we have to find new accommodation for people currently in student accommodation. I think this points to the need for a really clear medium to long-term plan by the government and I, I think we need to get beyond saying we're looking at all options and then try and look at more specifics. What does that actually practically look like? Mm. What are the options? Yeah, what, what are the options? Because I, I think each uh, government department was asked uh, to come back uh, with options for accommodating people and there was uh, very few suggestions, it seems. Yeah, so, you know, we certainly... Um, the modular housing that is being looked at and they're hoping to bring modular housing on stream before the end of the year. That would be really positive because that would give people a place that they could call home in the medium to long term. Um, And it means that they can start to build a life in a community, what we've seen with people who are in hotels or in other temporary accommodation, like college accommodation, is they don't know whether they should enrol their children in school. They don't know um, if they can take up work because they might be moved again very shortly. So it's trying to find uh, accommodation that will give people stability. Um, other suggestions that have been in place are looking at kind of older buildings and maybe smaller towns yeah. around the country. Um, things like 
old uh, Garda stations, for example, or old post offices, or hmm. certain buildings that are owned by the state um, that could be converted and you know made into accommodation. And that was recommended by the Housing Commission months ago. I read in the Irish Times uh, this morning that the government has yet to act on that proposal. Yes. So I think kind of all of this points to the fact that there isn't kind of one overall lead on accommodation specifically. Um, we have the Department of Children who, who don't realistically have expertise in accommodation, who have been trying to find you know, hotels and short-term accommodation for people. What we really need is someone with, who can oversee the entirety of this and um, you know, look beyond the immediate emergency needs to the longer-term needs and like, what other departments need to be brought in that they have the power to um, speak with other departments and, and get action. Mm. And uh, is um, the uh, space available or have we bitten off more than we can chew? Well, at the outset of this, we were talking about, you know, numbers of being thrown around like, you know, 80,000 or 100,000. We have... 200,000 at one stage we exactly. were hearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So actually the numbers that arrived have been less than what we thought they would be. There's, you know, I think it was a 43, 44,000 um, arrivals so far. Um, we are also having, you know, we're we're not unique in this. These are the same questions that are being asked in um, all of the countries in Europe. Everyone is, is are dealing with, with these same issues as well. Mm. Yeah. So, well, I mean, as the Tolens just said, we've only taken in 1% of the total number of refugees, which now uh, counts to about 5 million. And we're talking about 44,000 people in this country, which is far short of that 100 or 200,000. Uh, and God forbid, had so many uh, arrived here, given the crisis that we're in at this stage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and But we do have to expect that there will be more people coming mm. over the winter. Um, and we have to start preparing for how we deal with winter now. We need to be looking at that situation. I mean, having people in tents now during the heat isn't, certainly isn't ideal, but it'll be far worse mm. in winter time um, with families, with children. And, you know, your heart does go out for people, to people who are trying to, you know, comfort children or look after their children. Mm. And they've just evacuated. They've evacuated from a war zone. Everyone's tired, traumatised and they just need a safe and secure place and and being in a tent even though they may physically be safe doesn't feel like it's giving them that sense of safety and there'd be questions about safety as well, particularly when it's uh, women and children sleeping in tents Uh, You're you're, you're a member of uh, the Ukraine Civil Society Forum uh, as well and you were talking about a, a national coordinator for all of this Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think that's uh, one of uh, the main recommendations that has been made by the forum. Uh, but if the space isn't there what difference would it make if there was a coordinator or is it just that the, the, the problems wouldn't be quite as great as they are? See, we do believe that the space is there and it, it can be found um, and that creative solutions can be put in place. We're, you know, There was another story in the um, Irish Times that developers had said they would basically pro bono provide mm. Um, or you know, redo buildings and that the state would pay for materials. That hasn't really been acted on as far as we can see. Um, modular housing, yes, it's going to come on board, but actually, you know, could that have been actioned much earlier? Um, so it doesn't seem like there is that, you know, that ability to look beyond that immediate emergency, how are we housing people tonight, mm. to look at the longer term. And that's what having a national coordinator in place would do, it would give that breathing space that someone take that longer term view. Is there a reluctance uh, to make buildings uh, available? We heard that story uh, from the Gale Talks uh, that they had uh, some possibilities uh, if there were Irish speakers looking for accommodation. Oh, um, sorry, I didn't think I was aware of that. Okay, Um, right. That that was one of uh, the uh, reports uh, to the government from the government department, uh, Udris Nagelta, I think, said uh, something along those lines. That was reported in the Irish Times last week. Okay, okay. Well, look, we've seen that there are communities that wouldn't, you know, traditionally be thought of that are taking in refugees. And there's a story in today's papers about uh, Shirkin Island, and um, it has seen its population grow very significantly, having welcomed uh, families of refugees. And we know that there are communities who that are a little bit smaller. They may have um, kind of seen children or the kind of younger generation leave. They want to keep their schools open. They want to keep their services open. And they want to kind of bring life back into their communities again. Mm. So there are, there are absolutely communities out there that would welcome um, families arriving. Do you think there was a, a, an unrealistic expectation that people would be more charitable than they've proven to be? I think the Irish community has been really charitable so far and have been like, really eager to kind of open their homes and welcome people. But we also need to look at like how sustainable that is and the clarity um, around like how long that arrangement lasts for. You know, it really is only recently that that you know four hundred euro payment was put in place, that kind of recognition payment from the government as well. So we have possibly been quite slow in um, it was actioning or actually providing very concrete ways for the, the Irish community to help. Okay, undoubtedly uh, there'll be a, a lot of work ahead and a lot of concern uh, for 4,200 uh, people uh, who have uh, nowhere to go it seems uh, in, in the course of uh, the next month or so. 
Yeah, and we know that there are organizations like the Irish Red Cross and the International Organization for Migration that are working really hard to try and match people with hosted accommodation. But we know that that's not going to be the entirety of the solution. And we want to, you know, really, again, um, urge this idea of this mm. national coordinator. We know it's not going to be the panacea that cures all ills, but we do need to have someone who can oversee the entirety of the situation and plan for longer term because we should, as soon as we place people in that student accommodation, we should have been looking given that we knew that it was time limited should have been looking at what the exit plan was when the time came around Uh, and the clock isn't stopping Fiona we leave it there for the moment thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today that's uh, Fiona Hurley of NASC the Migrant and Refugee Rights Centre now let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning thank you to Susan in Dundalk who's been on the phone saying when it comes to the budget they need to do something to help help householders who are living in dread of this winter coming and what it's going to bring in terms of electricity and fuel costs. What about getting rid of the USC, which was only supposed to be temporary? Uh, That would benefit all workers, says Susan. Thank you indeed, uh, Susan, uh, for that. Jim in Trim says, who is going to pay for this increase in job seekers allowance? I've no problem with pensioners getting a pay rise, but I I agree that those who've been on the dole for 10 years or more should not be getting an increase. In actual fact, I think their payments should be reduced as it might encourage people to go out and get a job. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Jim. Uh, Another call from Paddy who says, no matter what the situation is, Sinn Féin are always whining and crying uh, about it. It would take an awful lot of work to clear the pipes in Dundalk from years of stuff that's been building up in them and going through them. Sinn Féin uh, should be coming up with uh, solutions instead of giving out about it. Well, thanks uh, for that, Paddy. Uh, I think a lot of people are upset about the water in Dundalk, in fairness, and uh, I think one of the solutions is uh, one that people probably aren't too happy with, which is to pay water charges and pay for new pipes and all of uh, that. Uh, An Avalon listener wants to know, how many rooms have the clergy made available to refugees? Now is the time to practice what they preach to the rest of us and open up their doors to the refugees. There's a large missionary building near Navan with hundreds of rooms. Uh, did they make any of them available? I wonder, says our listener. I think they made an awful lot of them available. I think the religious have uh, been very forthcoming uh, in making accommodation available to uh, refugees. Paddy Duffy says he was in Newry this morning and he put his debit card into an ATM. He took out £40. That's £40 sterling. He says he's been charged €55.97. Euro for the £40. 55, €56 euro for £40. Uh, he says he's charged that €56 euro for the privilege. It's an exchange rate of 0.7146, and that goes on, uh, to the pound. Uh, he says the spot exchange is 0.84 uh, instead of 0.71. Uh, and he says that's some rip off he says thank you indeed Paddy for that uh, somebody else said uh, this is Jocelyn uh, no no I beg your pardon it's somebody who's talking about a near miss in Jocelyn Street uh, recently uh, and on to us about e-scooters saying they should have some form of tax and insurance and rules laid down for riding including helmets 
some crazy riders out there. There's no respect for other road users or pedestrians, especially in areas where front doors are open into footpaths. I've seen that so many times where people are stepping out onto the footpath and you see somebody go by. God, it's frightening to think uh, if the two collided because sometimes they're going very, very fast. Uh, Somebody else then about e-scooters as well, saying that in Navin, there are five and six-year-olds going around on e-scooters in our estate. They, they, they couldn't be the e-scooters. They must be the ordinary scooters without the engine. Nobody would let a five or six-year-old go on an e-scooter, really, would they? Uh, Paddy says, does anybody remember the mantra, we're all in this together, this upcoming budget will lay bare the ideology of uh, the government parties once and for all. If it does not give the most to the least well-off, then it will be a Fine Gael budget, says Paddy. Michael, I know of two men who bought e-scooters for the purpose of driving home from the pub, says somebody else, because they won't be stopped uh, for drink driving as they would be in a car and they don't have to pay for a taxi. (laughs) Don't give people ideas. I probably shouldn't have read that out. Um, no, God, that's, uh, I don't know. You should be careful walking home from the pub if you've had a lot to drink or uh, cycling, let alone on an e-scooter. That's uh, frightening, isn't it? Uh, Matthew Andrade says, uh, we learned from the last time Jed Nash was in government uh, and now that they're not, he seems to have all of the answers. Tony in Dundalk says, why is there no mention of doing away the unfair USC charge, which was supposed to be temporary? Echoing a call from somebody else earlier as well. Thank you, Tony, for that. Uh, and somebody else in touch about the COVID payment, uh, a recognition payment. This is the thousand euro uh, for agency and section 39 workers. Why are we still waiting? All permanent staff have received their payment. What's the delay? I don't know, but I do know you're not the only one asking. But thank you indeed for asking that question here. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the daft.ie report uh, proved yesterday that the cost of renting continues to increase at a a phenomenal rate. It really is incredible. You'd need about 1,500 uh, to pay for the average rent locally. You'd be looking at about 2,000 in Dublin. Uh, It's increased by 12.6% nationally in the course of uh, the last year. Uh, And we had those staggering figures from Ronan Lyons on the programme yesterday that in 2011, the average cost of renting was €765 a month compared to €1,618 a month today. Um, But you know what I would say is that having uh, some uh, tax changes in the budget to encourage landlords to stay uh, renting or or stay in the market and not just sell up uh, I think that would be a good idea. Um, You know a lot of people are losing their homes uh, because landlords are selling up Um, but if we do something for landlords in the budget I think we'd have to do something for renters as well that would only be fair. Thank you. Nice night everyone. Tarnished uh, Leo Radker uh, speaking to reporters yesterday. Let's hear now from uh, John Mark McCafferty, who's uh, the chief executive of the housing agency Threshold. Good morning to you, John Mark. Thanks, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What do you hope the government does in the budget to improve the situation? Good morning, Michael. Um, Yeah, so um, we're looking for a a number of things. We have talked about um, the tax treatment of smaller landlords because... As the, the Tanisha had said there, um, smaller landlords are leaving the market and they have a less favourable tax treatment than um, the institutional landlords. And um, if there are ways in which, um, you know, we can incentivise smaller landlords to, to remain in the market, then that would be welcome. For example, um, 
a number of them are, are, are leaving because of the timing of, of uh, capital gains tax they may have um, bought between say 2011 and 2014 and, and they're, they're leaving to kind of reduce their liabilities there and if you know for example we can find a way to incentivize them if they are going to sell anyway mm. that they sell to maybe a local authority or say an approved housing body um, at a reduced um, or, or, or a, a zero capital gains tax rate that might enable that um, uh, that tenant to stay in uh, in renting and to stay in their home um, and and to keep that family from uh, moving into to homeless accommodation mm. or even worse. So we do have a real challenge. Are they really getting a raw deal or is it just that the corporations who are buying up a lot of properties to rent are getting a sweetheart deal? The... The big corporations are getting the sweetheart deal, and I wouldn't say in, in, in any ways that the smaller landlords are getting a raw deal. And, and mm. far be it for me to, to be the, the spokesperson yeah, for the landlords, but they're I, taking I, rent I, off people yeah. who who are buying houses for them. Uh, yeah. Um, so look, uh, what we're seeing is uh, households, so families, people who are. Um, having to leave their their rented um, home um, that they may have been in for for many many years because the landlord is selling and in those circumstances even though we you know we, we try our very very best to protect tenancies mm. and to keep people in our homes and thresholds and to advise people of all of their rights but what we've seen especially in uh, this year um, that there had been a, there's a marked increase in the number of um, very clear. Um, evictions because the landlord is selling um, and and goes on to sell and and the the family, the individual, lose their home. It's also compounded by the fact that, um, as Rona Lyons would have said yesterday, there's so few um, properties um, being advertised on DAFT. There's there's, there's so few properties available in the market. So there's so few alternatives now um, for people who face evictions. Mm. Back five, six years ago when I started out in Threshold, of course, tenancy terminations were a, a scourge um, and things were really challenging, but the chances were that there were other houses or apartments on the market, uh, the rental market, that people uh, may be able to move into. Um, we now have a situation where rents continue to increase, and then uh, at these um, tenancy terminations, a lot of them are legitimate because mm. of sale. It's not the only reason, but many of them are sale-related. And then there's nowhere for, for people to go. And we're yeah. also hearing of huge pressure at local authority level where they simply don't have the places for for emergency accommodation even. Okay, but we have a a number of problems which are are bouncing off each other uh, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, the solution is giving tax breaks to landlords uh, because if they are selling, there is that question about who are they selling it to? Are they not selling it to people who were renting and couldn't find anywhere to buy? Um, yeah, um, are you saying that they're, they're selling to people who are going to be homeowners anyway? Well, they're f- selling to first-time buyers, uh, but quite often the first-time buyers were renting. Uh, and if they weren't selling, there wouldn't be houses for them to buy. Um, yeah, if they weren't selling, absolutely. Um, but I suppose... Um, you have a separate problem. Also, you cause a separate yeah. problem by stopping people from selling their houses or encouraging them to, to, yeah. to hold on to them to, as, uh, as rental properties. Yeah, and, and look, that is the, um, 
the thing with any housing policy, it's the law of unintended consequences. But I suppose there's a number of strands here. One is that we continue to advocate for um, increased supply across the board, social housing provision, cost rental provision, um, and also owner occupation. So that is is, is rolling out, obviously, slower than we'd have liked because of uh, the COVID shutdown. Mm. But it, it, it's beginning to kind of un. Uh, it's beginning but now, to now, now they're saying it's because of inflation and all sorts of, of things. They uh, failed to spend two hundred million, wasn't it, uh, in the second quarter of the year? They were twenty eight percent behind, which had nothing to do well with COVID. Yeah, they're, they're, they're well yeah. behind on it, yeah. and it's not just COVID. You're right, yeah. Michael. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also about um, you know, there's there's also costs in relation to hikes and increase in, in labour costs and materials costs. That's causing all sorts of problems there on the supply side. But, you know, when, when we look at just the private rented sector, there's such a large proportion of our population who are in the private rented sector and they're spending longer in the private rented sector. Um, but the small landlords are getting out. And as unpalatable as it is uh, in lots of respects, um, there probably is greater uh, potential through you know this budget, subsequent budgets, mm. um, to look at how we might be able to kind of finely tune things to um, incentivise those landlords who are thinking about selling to either remain in the sector or to to sell on to um, uh, to a lo- to a local authority mm. or maybe an approved housing body. Yeah. Uh, um, and Ono Brendan was talking earlier this week about local authorities that have turned down properties that were offered to them. Yeah, and I, I think yes, and, and no, I don't know why that's the case. It might be because some properties aren't actually fire compliant, and um, they, they get into a whole heap of uh, issues then mm. on the on the regulations and the physical standard side of things. But mm. uh, you'd but, think but, that the, local the authorities would, would be have able to, 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 all, yeah, to, exactly. to carry out the yeah. works. Yeah, totally, totally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you'd think the local authorities are, are, are the best placed bodies in, uh, in the country. To, to tackle that and, and to, to go in and kind of invest and, and make those kind of changes that, that would enable those those houses, those apartments, mostly houses, I suppose, um, to, to to be available to, to, to renters in the mm. in a kind of social rented scenario. Um, so, look, there's, there's a whole variety of things that could be done. It's not easy. Um, there is no one silver bullet. Um, but you know, I suppose tax is one element of it. The roles of lo- the role of local authorities in identifying um, those um, places to purchase, plus um, uh, I suppose uh, derelict vacant sites uh, and, 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 uh, and vacant houses mm. that, that has to be tackled with greater momentum than, than heretofore. Yeah, governments have an amazing power, don't they? Uh, and you don't realise that till there's a, an emergency, let's say like COVID and you're told you can't yep. leave your house or uh, in wartime and you see tanks going down the streets or whatever the case yep. may be. Governments can do almost whatever they put their mind to doing. And therein lies the question about a crisis that's gone on for more than a decade. Uh, has there been a focus on this, an appropriate focus on it? Um I think it's one of the failings of the states, and I think it's one of the failings of the states since the 1980s. I think it's um, it hasn't just crept up on us. It's been something that um, public policy has turned its back on since then. Since I guess the um, the big uh, financial uh, situation and the recession of the 1980s, never since um, did the government um, have the same kind of focus on the provision of uh, public housing until recently. Um, you know, you look at the late 80s and, and right through the 90s and even during the Celtic Tiger, 
um, with the kind of resources that um, the governments of the of the late 90s and the, and the early and mid-90s had at their disposal, it was a very, very anemic, a very, very low-level um, uh, commitment to um, social housing and and kind of housing policy and, and housing provision generally. And it really, it, it, it really came, uh, I suppose, to uh, it crystallised in the last um, 10 years mm. uh, when we started to recover again, rent started to kind of uh, increase very, very aggressively from about 2013, 14 onwards, that um, governments started to kind of um, think about what they might do in relation to both the private rented sector and also getting serious about provision in, in the, the, pub, the public rented sector, whether that's local authority housing or the approved housing body housing, often known as a, a housing association housing. So there are a number of initiatives happening and that have been kind of in train for the last five or six years, but this is an intergenerational, this, this is something that's going to take 25 years to solve. And unfortunately, we were far too slow 20 years ago um, to, to you know provide social housing to provide the regulations for private rented housing that we needed. Um, it started back in 2004 when um, the Residential Tenancies Board came into being and that was very welcome, but the level of protections were quite minimal. We now have stronger levels of protections, but in some regards they're kind of academic because people are just simply losing their homes because tenant uh, landlords are selling. And that's why we have to think of kind of in some ways unpalatable things. Mm. Like tax incentives for for um, for landlords, mm-hmm. smaller landlords, because of the the very intractable situations and just the the dire situations that we are hearing and we're witnessing from people and their families who are faced with notices of eviction that mm. they know that okay they might have a longer notice um, notice period they might have three months or six months instead of three months yeah. but ultimately they have to get out of that house. And yeah, that's heartbreaking for people. Uh, and when people are in that situation, it really seems like the end of the world. It's as dire as it gets. Should mention as well that threshold help people who have problems, whether it's at that very dire end of the scale where you've a notice to quit and you're being evicted, or you're having other problems with your landlord. There's that free phone number that you have one eight hundred four five four four five four, and indeed. You've got a, a great chat service there where uh, on yeah. the internet you can just type in your question, somebody answers you back, you can say, I didn't quite understand that, how does it work? And they'll type back and explain it to you. Absolutely, yeah. That was something we, we introduced in, uh, during the first year of the pandemic was the, the web chat service. We also have a video conferencing service so oh, okay. uh, people can speak kind of, you know, virtually face-to-face. So if people go on threshold.ie, Michael, they can they can um, they can book an appointment with an advisor, um, and they can do uh, like a Teams call, like a, a video call, a video conference call, um, as well. Um, and um, that that's another option. So what we're doing is we're broadening the channels in which we um, we interact with people because we know that renters are a, a very mixed group and they, they they choose to communicate with us in a whole variety of, of, of different ways. It's not all through um, feed the free phone. It's yeah. often as you say. Through the web chat, through video conferencing, mm. and, and also through through emailing or, or, or yeah, or, or, or just just read questions that uh, come up quite often and the answers to them. Uh, there's an awful lot on the website threshold.ie. It's a brilliant service. John Mark, thank you indeed for joining us on the program this morning. Thank you, John Mark McCafferty of the Housing Agency uh, Threshold. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Why on earth people get out uh, about uh, the cost of uh, school uniforms is beyond me because if you shop around, you really don't have to spend that much money. Take this, for example. Boys and girls, smart start sweatshirts, 149 each. I think most people could afford that. Kids' school shirts, 349. Hardly breaking the bank, is it? And a pair of trousers for two euro. The total... 7 euro and there's also polo shirts available for 2 euro which would bring you to the grand total of 9 euro this is the Lidl school uniform uh, range uh, this year and photographs of children wearing these clothes in uh, the newspapers this week and they look uh, very very well indeed nothing wrong with these uniforms so why don't people buy them I think it's a valid question, don't you? Uh, Tricia Kylty is Head of Social Justice and Policy with St. Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you, Tricia, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Can you explain to me why people are giving out about the cost of school uniforms when you can get them for €7? Good morning, Michael. Yeah, I I know the cost of school uniforms is a major issue for families who are contacting SVP for help. And it really just depends on what the school criteria is for the uniform. So we know from the Bernardo School Cost Survey, which was published um, earlier um, in July, showed that at primary level, the average cost is €117 for a uniform. At secondary school level, uh, it's €194 is the average that parents are paying. Now, there is low-cost options out there, as you um, pointed out, but for some schools, they would require a specific uniform which can be much more expensive. So now, instead of a hundred, instead of a, instead of seven euro, uh, parents have to spend one hundred and seventeen euro, or the school won't accept the child. Is it? So it depends, you know. So they'd have to have the crested uniform um, that is provided in certain shops. Um, now there is options for parents if they can have a sew-on crest, and that's something that the Department of Education they published a circular in two thousand and seventeen mm. asking schools to have unbranded uniforms for for students that they could just sew on the crest, which mm. would re- re- really reduce the cost to parents. Now, sc- some schools do that, others don't. We'd like to see that circular more widely adopted by schools so parents have more options for low-cost uh, okay. uniforms as well. And I'm sure there's parents saying, I could do with that €110, Euro, that would be spare if I didn't have to spend €117. Euro. Um, it, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's right. You know, and as I said, there is options there for some families, but for others, there isn't. And we know that the back to school clothing and footwear allowance has increased by €100 Euro mm. this year. The government announced that again in July, which will be a huge relief for many families. Um, but the reality is many families don't qualify for that payment. Um, and people are just above the income thresholds, many people that contact SVP for help. So they have to pay the full amount and that can be very difficult for people. But even if you include the books, the voluntary contributions, um, the total cost, you know, for a primary school uh, student can be 400, over 400 euro. Mm. To get them back to school, the clothing and footwear allowance is, is just uh, above €280. Euro. So there's already a gap there, even if you do qualify. And secondary school is even more expensive um, in the region of €800 to €1,000 to get a first-year student back to school. Mm. So they're huge costs. And at the moment, when you have so many other price pressures on families, whether that's the utility bill coming through the door or the 
which food shopping has gone up in cost as well. Mm. You know, there's a lot of pressure there and that extra hundred euro, which is welcome, has already been eaten up, unfortunately, for mm. many people. Mm. Yeah, well... They're unnecessary costs. Uh, I mean, it's clear as day looking at the photographs of uh, the children kitted out in these uniforms in uh, the papers uh, this week. And if you're going to the supermarket and you're rubbing your pennies together, it must be very hard to stomach that you don't have money in your purse because you've spent it on uniforms at an unnecessary cost. Yeah, that's right. It can be very difficult. And I suppose, again, that's just why we're saying, you know, that that's circular. It's really important that that's properly implemented. And the Department of Education should be monitoring that to ensure that schools are offering affordable uniform options to all parents so that they're not put under unnecessary pressure as well at back to school time. Okay, I want to ask you if I can about uh, the Tax Strategy Group report yesterday. it's supposed to be putting out uh, the options that are available to the government uh, and one of the options is a 15 euro increase in welfare rates. Uh, I take it that's the government telling us that the 20 euro that St Vincent de Paul has been calling for is not an option. Well, I suppose these are just options that the Department of Finance put together and present to the Minister for Finance. We have based our uh, call for €20 on what projected inflation is for people on the lowest incomes. So that is at 11% currently. So in order to protect the incomes of those on the lowest incomes, it would need to be at a minimum €17 increase. We're calling for €20 because we know that rates are below the poverty line already. So we need to ensure that people have that extra buffer, extra security going into what would be a very, very difficult year. We hope the government will listen to us in terms of our recommendations. It's not only the core rates, we're also calling for increases on the fuel allowance and that that's extended to more people who need it. For example, people in receipt of the working family payments, which would make a massive difference to those households. So it's the collection of measures that can be implemented that would make a huge difference. And again, it's also investing in services and um, that reduce those out-of-pocket expenses for families. So, for example, making primary and secondary schools genuinely free. So free school books, an end to voluntary contributions and affordable uniform options for parents as well. Mm, well. They are possible. Uh, I'm looking at them in the papers. Uh, People can go down uh, to their local Lidl and see them for themselves uh, and wish uh, if they're paying 117 and they don't have 117 that they'd be allowed to spend 7 euro on perfectly good uniforms for their children. It's bizarre stuff altogether in my mind. Tricia, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Tricia Conti is Head of Social Justice and Policy with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Somebody texting us uh, saying that uh, the earlier caller was correct. There are five and six-year-olds on motorised scooters, on e-scooters. My God, I I don't know. Shame on the parents um, because, uh, I mean, that's an accident waiting to happen. Um, Thank you uh, for telling us. Uh, We've Kate in Dunleer in touch with us saying she bought... Her two kids, their school uniforms yes, yesterday, uh, that's tracksuit bottoms, a jumper, both of which are crested, and they are the new uniform for the school bought in this year. They're very specific, and you can't get them in Duns or Lee or Aldi. Uh, you can uh, get the crest put on them. Three sets each for both my children cost me €258, Euro, and I had to buy their polo T-shirts separate. Thanks, Kate, uh, for that. Uh, 
I think a, a lot of people will identify with what you're saying. Uh, Pat McDade uh, of the Labour Party, Drogheda branch, says in defence of Labour and to ensure balance in your broadcast, he wanted to say that the Irish economy was a basket case when Labour went into government in 2012, driven into the ground primarily by Fianna Fáil worshipping at the high altar of property speculators and those who wanted light regulation for basically everything. In October 12, Ireland signed up for the bailout. There was only enough in financial reserves to pay public sector wages for four months. Contrast that with the situation today, a huge surplus due to the hard work of taxpayers and enterprise. It is unbelievable that Pascal Dunahoo will not even consider a super profits tax on energy companies. Even the Tories in Britain have accepted that such a tax must be brought in after relentless pressure from the Labour Party there and its leader, Keir Starmer. Pat, thank you indeed uh, for your message and your uh, time uh, that you spent putting into texting us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as you know, public sector talks, pay talks uh, broke uh, down. Uh, the WRC is hoping uh, that all parties, that is uh, the government and the Irish Congress of uh, Trade Unions, will resume uh, those talks in uh, the coming weeks. But in the interim, uh, two of uh, the teachers' unions and possibly a third are to ballot for strike action. The Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland is recommending its members vote for industrial action. And let's hear from its president now, Miriam Duggan, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. When do you expect a, a result from the ballot? Well, the ballot will take place in September. But what we're at the moment, we're waiting for uh, the results of the talks. Um, you know, the, the talks will take place over the coming weeks, we hope. And we see those talks as a real window of opportunity uh, to resolve this issue. Um, so, so that's what our hope is now going forward. Um, and effectively, those talks will happen and one of two things will happen. Mm. Either there will be an acceptable offer made by government and that will be put to our members or across the public sector um, and members will ballot on that. But in the event that the government fails to make uh, a reasonable offer, then there will be a ballot for industrial action across the whole public sector. Okay, that's uh, an offer higher than the combined uh, annual increases of 2.5%, 5% over two years. That's, that was rejected yes. um, mm-hmm. in June, and okay. that's when the talks broke up. Could I just, Michael, if it's all right with you, um, to just explain to your listeners how this came about and where we are with it, because I think that's really important. Mm. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mm. Basically, the firm pay deal uh, that we have has a clause in it that says, under certain circumstances, there can be a review. Mm. Well, the Congress of Trade Unions triggered that review on March the 11th. Mm. When they did that, inflation was at 5.6%. Mm. And you were due a 1% increase under building momentum, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, it took uh, till May for the government to respond to that invitation, mm. and by then inflation was 7%. The talks broke up without agreement on June the 17th, as you mentioned, and by then inflation had hit 7.8%. Mm. So by the end of June, inflation was at 9.1%. Okay. And you can just see the 
But with respect, Miriam, everybody knows that. I, I, I'm not sure why you feel the need to explain that to everybody because everybody knows when they go to the supermarket uh, the, <laughs> the cost of, of their shopping is twice what it used to be. It's the same with electricity. Uh, fill up the car, whatever it is. Uh, inflation is through the roof. The cost of living is through the roof. There was calls for an emergency budget. The government rejected that saying, you think it's bad now? Wait till we get into the winter. It's going to get a whole lot worse. We're going to take a series of measures. And I'm just wondering if you're looking at these public sector talks in isolation or if you will be taking them in the context of the budget because there's many ways to skin a cat and a pay rise is just one way of putting more money into your members' pockets. I'm very aware of that. And I'd just like to explain again to your listeners uh, that the way it happens in the public sector is that we mandate our negotiators to go in and negotiate with the government. And while they're in those negotiations, um, they, they are kept totally private. So I wouldn't be privy to what the negotiators are doing mm. um, in those talks, and that's fair enough. We'll be told at the end of them okay. uh, what the results were. So and I understand I and I appreciate that, Miriam. I suppose the, the, the first question I put to you was uh, about when you expect uh, the results of uh, the ballot, because uh, I was wondering that if your members ballot for industrial action, will that happen before the 27th of September when the budget is to be uh, announced? Because there's many measures that could offset the concerns that you have uh, about inflation. We're seeing this morning a 30% tax rate, for example, could put a, a thousand euro in your members' pockets. Yeah, and again, I'm just going to say that, that the negotiators will deal with all that end of it, and I'm going to leave them free to do their work uh, w- without discussing it. Now, as I understand it, uh, the schedule this is working on within the public sector itself um, is that the ballot would be finished by the middle. Of September. That's as I understand it. That might be open to change. I can't comment. Mm, but do you understand the point that I'm making to you? You could have more take home pay as a result of measures that are announced in the budget. The cost of electricity or energy could be less because of the budget and so on. And the 5% increase. Uh, cannot be viewed in isolation or the 6 or the 7% if there is an agreement. No, Michael, I hear your point, and I hope you hear mine. I do, of course. Uh, which is that we, we, we leave that to the negotiators. They're as aware of everything uh, as we are, and we leave that to the negotiators. We trust them to act in our best interest. Okay. Um, and I think it's best to, to leave them the freedom to do their jobs. Okay, but uh, you will uh, be recommending uh, uh, industrial action if the negotiators don't feel that uh, they've successfully represented your members. Uh, what form might that industrial action take? Again, you're a step ahead of us there. Basically, what has happened is the Congress of Trade Unions asked all public sector unions who are affiliated to them uh, to prepare for ballot in case A, if there is an offer, or case B, if the offer isn't made or, or if the talks fall apart. So that's as far as we've got, and, and we are recommending that um, our members would vote in favour of taking industrial action in conjunction with the whole public service. Uh, whole public sector unions who are affiliated to ICPU. As to the detail of that, that's going to take some working out and so I wouldn't have information on that yet. Okay, all right, uh, but uh, there could very well be a winter of discontent ahead, not just with teachers but with all public sector workers and uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of focus on those talks uh, as well as... uh, Michael, we hope there won't be. Mm. Um, This is really important. We simply I mean, it's it's part of our work in protecting our members. Uh, We're hoping that these talks will yield a result. It's up to the government really. 
Um, that's what our hope is, and that's where all our efforts are going. Uh, however, it would be less than fair to our members not to be prepared to make the case more strongly if the talks failed. Okay, uh, I'm sure many people will feel the same way because uh, I think the reality of it is that at this stage we've all taken the equivalent of a, a 10% pay cut over the course of uh, the last year and we hope that there's some solution for all of us uh, for I, that I think everybody, everybody is. Are your listeners calling in and, and discussing how inflation and rampant inflation at this stage is really impacting on them? Mm, absolutely. It's really worrying. No, uh, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, I mean, we were just talking with Vincent de Paul before you came on, Miriam, about seven euro uniforms uh, in Lidl, uh, and uh, parents having to pay far beyond that, uh, which uh, I suppose uh, comes into your sector. But it's uh, the type of issue that people are, are dealing with on a, a daily basis, uh, and I think some people are finding it impossible to make ends meet and are rubbing uh, uh, their pennies together and looking at prices on supermarkets shelves that are well, unaffordable. We're starting mm-hmm. to hear stories now of people having to make mm-hmm. ridiculous choices. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I know heat and uh, light, those would be huge choices, mm. but the inflation rate around food prices is another significant worry um, at this stage. So, yeah, it, it's a very difficult time. Okay, really Miriam. I've run out of time, but thank you for your time, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Miriam Duggan is uh, the president of ASTI. That's the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland, and that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.